Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who was born and raised in America, but now spends a lot of her time here in the United Kingdom. She founded her own orchestra in London in 1999. She won the Eduardo Mata Conducting Competition in 2009, and in 2019, she became the chief conductor of the Uppsala Chamber Orchestra in Sweden. It's a great pleasure to welcome Rebecca Miller. Rebecca, it is lovely to meet you and to speak with you. How are you today? Just fine, thank you, yep. Good, excellent. Um, as somebody who's just told me before I press record that you have listened to a few episodes, you'll probably know that at the beginning of every episode, I go right back to the beginning. And I think I read somewhere that, was it your mum? Or is it your mum who's a musicologist or something? So music was in the family. Was the piano the first thing you learned? And if so, why? Uh, and at what age? Um, I started on the violin, actually. Oh, right. uh, cool. we, don't have a, we don't have a date, but we do have a photo evidence of me standing uh, in nappies playing uh, <laughs> violin in one nappy rather uh yeah. so that sort of dates it and i think it was i was somewhere around two um and i started on suzuki violin and i my mom doesn't quite remember why but i think it's just because my brother did it and i wanted to do everything that he did so, mm. so we got a violin we got a six, you know, 16th size violin yeah. and off i went um and it wasn't until age five or just before five that i started the piano as well yeah and how how far did you go with your uh, Suzuki studies. I mean, as an ex-violin teacher, I think I could know a Suzuki people when they walked in. Um, they were the, they were the most sorted, honestly. I, there was only one tiny technical hitch I had to change, in my opinion, but how far did you go? Well, I did it, I did both all the way, violin and piano, all the way until about 15 or 16, when I was um, playing the dangerous sport of badminton, and mm -hmm. I fell on my left wrist and um couldn't couldn't twist my arm into the into the violin uh left hand pose uh for for many many months actually mm. and it was kind of a deciding point i i had been struggling to figure out time to you know be serious about two instruments and i knew i had to decide at some some point which to focus on um and at that point it was it was almost decided for me um that uh I had a, a couple of piano recitals coming up and I remember we negotiated with my doctor <laughs> that I mm. didn't have a cast, but yeah. I had a, a splint instead so that I could start sort of moving it around um, earlier than perhaps a six week cast might have done. And, and, and it healed just fine, but it was mm. many, many years before I could actually pick up the violin again. And, um, and I focused on the piano at that point forward. This is interesting because, I, uh, as everybody knows, I, I use Wikipedia and or your own website, and the violin's not mentioned at all, which means I hadn't thought about this. But what it means is that you must have played in youth orchestras and youth ensembles and encountered conductors that way. The reason why I bring it up is that, you know, I've also interviewed many people who, who were pianists all the way through, and some most of them ended up being going into the Kapellmeister system and never played an orchestral instrument, but you did. So uh, is that where you may be? in hindsight, can think conducting came into your life as a thought? I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I, I love playing music with other people. So I think perhaps in my veins, somehow the social aspect of music, which I always 
um, when people ask me, why did you become a conductor? That's, that's, that's the thing that sort of is closest to my heart in terms of um, just wanting to make music with other people and be on yeah. stage with a bunch of other people. So I suppose inadvertently, maybe, maybe it was, I never thought about being a conductor at that stage. I did play in youth orchestras um, and I did, um, you know, various music competitions. And I mean, I was a, I was in a small town in California. I was the, you know, pretty much the only one of my friends who took music seriously. And, and we had to sort of go, um slightly over the hill over route 17 to the uh, to the south bay um to to get any sort of proper youth orchestras and um uh, i think it's much different now in santa cruz the youth orchestras and the, and the young you know, is much different than than when i was growing up but um no. i did i did commute over the over the through the mountains to go to youth orchestra every week um and uh I remember, I remember that specifically because I was, I was, we were driving when the big earthquake hit uh, in the 1989 wow. um, and we were on our way to youth orchestra. So yes, I did encounter conductors then. I, I wouldn't say they were positive influences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Formative influences. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but they yeah. might, but you can, but you know, there are, there's influences in life that, that, that make us, that, that, that don't necessarily are, are positive influences, but, but influence us because of what, the people are not um but uh, yes and i am so so very very thankful uh for having had experience on a string instrument yeah. even if i i describe myself as, as never being very good um i have i i rely on that i get out the violin i, I try to work out bowings i i have that experience of connecting a, a bow with a string and i use that a lot in my teaching as well mm. and i encourage all of my students to if they haven't tried a string instrument to try to you know, do a grade one a thon or something like that to at, le at least they know what it feels like because the majority of people sitting in front of you are string players usually. Absolutely. And um, if you have that connection somehow with your right hand, that it can it can go a long way. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's you know, it's one of the the things I look upon as my own life and think as a conductor and think thank God I was a string player and not necessarily uh, as you know uh, 22 years as a violinist in the CBSO I'm not even that just that I was a string player and I have a knowledge of string playing I think you're so right you made the decision as you said or that it was made for you by um sport it's never good for you sport um uh to uh, concentrate on the piano and you went to Oberlin Conservatory and studied piano there um but then the next thing that appears is you studied conducting at Northwestern University now I'll ask you who with in a minute but what changed why did you suddenly want to study conducting well I mentioned that I was the only one of my friends who took music seriously and um in in high school I um I went off to a summer program the high school program of, of Tanglewood ah. um the, the what we were called booties <laughs> the Boston <laughs> University Tanglewood Institute which was their high school program yeah. and it was at, in this summer program when really I met other sort of music nerds like me yeah. um and i was in a piano trio and i mean, i just loved the experience of being around other people who really um took their musically uh, music as seriously as i did and i was in this piano trio and i loved being in the position where i had all the other parts in front of me and i knew mm. what everybody else was doing and i could see how the music was put together and who had what and um and i think the other two people in the in the trio were maybe a little bit shy and i was a little bit more uh, assertive and so I sort of naturally fell into this slightly leadership role in this trio and I remember being on the phone to my mom um, we had one of those phones that you had to 
sign up for in the corridor. And so you're sitting on a on the floor in a cold corridor yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. with a corded phone and talking to her about this. And and she said, Do you know, um, you know, you've had experience on so many different instruments, and now you're talking about sort of um enjoying having this leadership role in this in this little piano trio. Have you ever thought about being a conductor? Mm. And I've never thought about it before. And I started thinking about it at that point. Uh, when I got back, we had uh, in our in in my hometown where my mom was the um, one of the professors at, at University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, they had recently hired a, uh, a dynamic uh, French Canadian conductor um, as their director of orchestral studies, Nicole Pemont. Uh, she was a, a ball of fire and really mm. taking taking the whole orchestral scene uh, by storm there and you know my mom had become friendly with her and so she said you know why don't you talk to Nicole about this and maybe she'd even give you some lessons so I've started having conducting lessons before I'd conducted anything yeah um, and it was at that that point when I started getting really curious about it so it wasn't like I suddenly stood us in front of an orchestra and I loved the feeling that came much much later mm. um, but I actually loved the concept that it was my job to study the score mm, <laughs> mm. I always enjoyed studying the score much more than actually practicing um and not to say that you don't need to practice as a conductor but I love that bit of it and that was kind of my way in it's it is a one of the joys you know um when one comes through the post and it's brand new and you open it up a piece you don't know or or you you know in some respects because you've listened to it but you've never seen the score um it is a real joy and it's something that you know you've got to love doing if you're going to be a conductor as we are because you spend inordinately more time in your study learning the scores than you do actually standing in front of people conducting them um yes. yeah it's it's uh it's a very very important part of what we do um so at uh, Northwestern University was that did you stay with the same teacher or was that a different teacher oh no so I I studied uh privately with Nicole yeah. uh throughout my high school. And then I went off to Oberlin Conservatory yeah. um, as a pianist uh, and a piano major. And I, um, I actually went, I went there to study with a particular piano teacher and discovered that when I got there, I was actually not assigned to him, but I was assigned to his wife. Oh. Um, I was quite cross about that yeah. um, because he was, he was quite, I thought I'd made it into his piano studio. And um, in fact, I, I, she was an absolute dream of a teacher and I, I loved her to bits. Um, in fact, she, she was, she was quite cross with me that I decided to become a conductor. She wanted really <laughs> to continue my piano. Playing. She's not the first uh, <laughs> teacher who's been quite cross with that when they're you know their instrumental student has gone, gone down the dark. Gone to path. the dark side, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, I, I met a, a, a friend of mine who was a bassoonist, and I talked to him about my interest in conducting, and he said, "Well, why don't you just get together a, a reading session and let's let's read together? I'll help you. I, I I'm in the orchestra, and I can help." Uh, right. So we got together a reading session of, of Mozart uh, 35, it's the first movement, um, for, you know, just half an hour or something like this. And the sound and the being in the middle of an orchestra, but being, but not actually doing it, but actually mm. just being surrounded by this, um, by all of this music and being in the middle of it was so thrilling um, that I got the bug and I'd never really looked back. And it felt like something that really, suited me uh like when you put on a suit and it really really fits and you feel yeah I can do anything in this suit um, so I, I felt empowered by that and I spent most of my time at Oberlin just getting together mm. orchestras and ensembles and we did 
um, Vivaldi Four Seasons, we did Mozart Grand Partita and various other things and putting together orchestras, uh, just persuading people to, to come and, and play and taking them out for drinks afterwards. And, uh, hmm. <laughs> and that's how I got my experience. And I also did some choral conducting. I did the, the choral conducting course there and the orchestral conducting course, but um, mostly it was the experience of putting together my own ensembles that gave me the experience to then apply to a master's program at Northwestern, which is hmm. where I am with my orchestral conducting degree. And who was your teacher mentor there? Well, and, I, and were they vastly different from your first teacher? You're probably having private lessons. Completely Jekyll yeah. and Hyde. Yes, yeah. uh, completely opposite. Um, I was with Victor Yampolsky at Northwestern, who is a, a legendary teacher. He's just retired. Um, and I draw on so many things that he said every day of my life. And um, hopefully maybe he'll listen to this one day <laughs> he knows it though he knows it yeah. he was he was really tough on all of us and he he put on this very I mean he was tough on the outside and he really he really pushed us hard I did always see a twinkle in his eye and I thought right. there's, that there's something there there's 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 um you know because a, a lot of people were were really put off by some of the things that he would say and he was he was a you know a tough Russian teacher um but when he conducted he just he, he looked like Beethoven, you know, when he conducted, I remember seeing him conduct a rehearsal of Beethoven five and he j just looked like Beethoven on the podium because the music was in his every vein and mm. the sweat beads were Beethoven's and, and all of that. And, and it was, it was just so inspiring to me. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was a tough year. It was only one year masters. It flew by like a flash, but um, mm very very influential and yes he was completely different than Nicole. Nicole I think really gave me um, the best possible start. She instilled in me um, a sense of organization. Your score has to be organized and marked properly and don't just mark it haphazardly. Use a ruler, use hmm. colors, mark cues like this. Um, make sure that that everybody can see your face all the time make sure that everybody can see your hands all the time be careful about what you wear you know all these practical things yes in addition of course to the gestures and all of that um but but that's that's really what i and, and that was a, a a brilliant start um because you can have such a haphazard start in this business i think it's uh, it's good to have somebody who can start you off on on the um on the path of being organized yeah, it's very true. Jonathan Del Mar instilled that in me in the one year I studied with him at Birmingham in the conservatory when I was a student. But then when I started conducting later on in my career, you know, I was, whatever, 10 years into a violin playing career, um, uh, it, I was sort of relying on the people I was watching week in, week out, you know. So there was, I was probably copying an awful lot of Simon Rattle, an awful lot of Zachary Oromo. Um, but yeah, that he instilled in me the organisation and the rigour of how to learn a score and mark it up, which we will come back to later, which is the 11th question. Um, <laughs> you then cross the pond, as they say, uh, mm -hmm. and do two years at the RCM. Who was teaching at the Royal College of Music then? Um, John Carew was, I can't mm. remember, he was... Um advisory professor professor something like that he was a sort of adjunct uh, you know professor he was there and he ran these classes um at his house sort of yeah. uh score study classes and then would do, take some master classes and i was a junior fellow so i was sort of a student but not a student i was given a stipend to do various different things and so uh, but i mean I, I basically treated it as a i was a student and i yeah. learned as much as i could from him um 
I applied three times before I applied a yeah, third time was lucky uh first yeah. two times I didn't get in um and uh yeah jo I mean John was those, those classes were also really formative and amazing and John I, I draw on a lot of things that that I learned from him and he literally turned my world upside down um mm -hmm. by literally saying look at the baseline everything yeah. is in the baseline the answer is in the baseline you must know the harmony you must know every single chord every single harmony on that page even if you don't say a word about it in front of the orchestra you've got to know it and listen to the baseline listen to the harmony and that was that was um it's something that i i think i did instinctively but not necessarily did in terms mm. of writing it in diligently and, and as part of my my study so mm. um that was that was uh, John's, that, that's what I draw on from John. I'm assuming if the if the chronology is right, and you'll tell me if it isn't, and then I'll just repeat the question with a better better answer. But we leave the Royal College of Music, and not long afterwards, you did what many conductors do, which is start your own orchestra, the new professionals orchestra in London. Um, did you have a, a, because we're going to come on to your education uh, and working with youth later on, because you do a lot of it, and I, I and I love talking about that element of what conduct, some conductors do, I'll say some conductors do, was it, did you have a reason for starting it? I mean, the cynical reason would be, I haven't got anybody to conduct, so I'll form my own orchestra to make sure that I have got somebody to conduct. And other conductors have said exactly that. But was there another reason? Um, and how did you find it, starting one from scratch? Uh, there are a lot of questions in there. Um, yes, there I'll are. Take the, first, the chronology <laughs> was that basically as soon as I landed here in the UK, I started an orchestra. So it was actually before I went to the... Right. It was, uh, you know, then I applied to the college a couple of times um so yeah I was running my own orchestra when I applied to the college so yeah I, I landed here I didn't have anything else to do my husband's a pianist he was starting his um master's degree at the Royal College I thought what should I do you know and I, I did what I've always done which is that nobody's going to hand me an orchestra mm. and they get, get people you know jobs and competitions they all want somebody who has experience yeah um so i've got to make my own experience so yeah. i just did what i had always been doing at at oberlin and at northwestern is i formed my own orchestra and i had a lot of uh, danny's help with it my husband who was who had been at cambridge and had been junior um royal academy of music before then so he had a lot of contacts in addition to people that he knew at the royal college where he was studying postgrad um and uh so we started an orchestra and so it was twofold it was yes i want something to conduct because i want to get more experience so that i can conduct more mm, mm, <laughs> um mm. but it was also that i i did have some really sort of idealistic views about um programming one and two about working with uh, about um well originally it was called the young professional music society of london or so ypms that's right mm. um and so it was it was the idea was that it was going to be people who and it, it's a music society in a different sense than a music society means here and i didn't realize that at the time i wanted it as a group of musicians who would play together chamber music and orchestra music um and mm, just a collective a, 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 yeah. exactly a collective yeah. yeah um it ended up 
being sort of that uh, in, the, in the, that we integrated chamber music into our orchestral programs and we had a little bit of opera and we had a little bit of this and so uh, things that you wouldn't normally put next to each other in a program. Um, we did we did a little bit of that motley programming and we had a, a you know a bit of uh, diversity in there as well which we started um, long before it was seemingly popular to do so um, <laughs> and uh, yeah we ran it I ran it for 10 years and we made a couple of recordings and it ended up being uh, there was a core group of players who kind of moved through it together mm. and uh, there were lots of people who moved around it and in and out of it and all of that um, once you started on a certain level uh, you know a certain level of players wanted to play with other people and it was attractive I think for music college students who weren't necessarily getting all the all that they wanted at music college in terms of the orchestral parts that they were playing um and they you know a bit of extra orchestral experience on the side to help them prepare for their auditions and things like that so um it was great I mean it was a great experience a hugely hard work in terms of how I found found running my own orchestra well I had 10 hats yes know. yeah yeah <laughs> I had the, the 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 orchestra fixer the uh, f the the finance manager, the marketing manager, the front of house, yeah, uh, <laughs> manager, uh, and last of all, the conductor. Yeah, uh, yeah. which 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 is about ten percent at the end, and you realize, do I actually know the music that I'm supposed to be conducting? Do I too worried about whether I have enough violins? But um, it's all it's all been part of my formative experience of now I I know what it feels like to do all those jobs, even on a little little tiny scale, mm. uh, so I can hopefully understand what it's like. In larger organizations that i've worked for yeah exactly you know you when you you know you've become chief in Uppsala in sweden you know you now know when you're speaking to the marketing manager a little bit about what they're doing and and you're you're speaking to somebody who books the venues or the soloists or whatever i mean you know uh, i've had one conductor on here chad goodman tell me about you know the fact that he, he even you know he had no help at all he was hiring the van and, and hiring the chairs and the venue and putting the chairs out himself you know and printing off programs and all of that sort of stuff it means you can there are life skills you can always learn and pick up. That sort of orchestra, I think, is very important. And I, you know, I've heard of them or even conducted them in other countries. This sort of stepping stony type ensemble, which is separate to a conservatoire, but is attractive to people at the, the latest stages of their conservatoire life before you go and then do endless auditions and trials for a, you know, a, a job in a symphony orchestra that I think they're very attractive and if they're they're doing exciting music and because you know at a conservatory level you know depending on how it's run you maybe do symphony orchestra on a Friday or it's a project-based thing over two weeks and then you don't play in another orchestra again and if you want to be an orchestral musician that's a shame you know uh, I know that's the case in Birmingham it's literally a two-week project and then they don't play again you know and that's yeah. it's a shame that to have somewhere else to go like that is very attractive Hmm. Um, I'm going to go on and back home, back to the US. Um, and it's been a while since I've talked about this or doing these sort of jobs. But you, assistant at Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, but then you were uh, conducting fellow at the Houston Symphony for two years and then resident conductor at the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. That's harder to say than I thought it was going to be for three years. These roles, these jobs, wherever you, you know, you can either be conducting 30 or 40 concerts a year or even as lowly as putting the Boeings in and making the conductor a cup of coffee they're very important jobs aren't they at this stage of your career that you're an absorbent sponge for wisdom from all of the players and the conductors you're working with how did you find those 
years doing those roles and also juggling, you know, running, still running your orchestra, I'm assuming in London um, at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you've done a brilliant job of getting all of those different titles exactly right. They sound very different, <laughs> but they're really all the same job. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, they, yeah. They, they were they were they were a little bit different at different um, at the different institutions. Um, at Jerusalem Symphony, I prepare I, I, I did only conducting and yeah. just took the first few rehearsals and then the music director would come in for the last two rehearsals and take over and I'd stay as cover conductor uh, in case he fell ill or something. Um, so there was a there was there, that was an interesting role preparing music for somebody else. So mm. you you and I think the the over the overarching theme in all three of those positions, although not in Louisiana so much, but in Houston and Jerusalem definitely, um, was that <laughs> you're in charge, but you're not really in charge. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so you you in Jerusalem, I really had to I had to take somebody else's tempo, somebody else's music that they'd chosen, uh, try to anticipate what tempos he might take, um, and what decisions might have to be made and a lot of them were deferred until he would show up in terms of mm. what what Boeing's you know we should do and you know it's, there were some decisions that had to be taken early on and some that could be deferred and so it's preparing for somebody else that's a certain skill yes. um, and then you got to completely let go and watch somebody else take the same orchestra in the same music with the same people and and do something maybe along the lines of what you were doing or do something completely different mm. and watched how that changed. And that was fascinating. Um, if sometimes a bit infuriating, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'm only laughing because uh, I, I've done it on a couple of occasions. Uh, once or twice professionally, I prepared Shostakovich for, for Valery Gergiev with the Swedish radio, uh, cause he was just going to turn up on the day and that's not the piece that you can do on the day. So they asked me to go and do that. And you know, there was documentary evidence of how fast he does things. But the reason why I was laughing was since its foundation, I've I've basically rehearsed the CBSA Youth Orchestra for every single concert, and for most of them, handed it over to somebody on with two rehearsal days to go. And I don't stay stay and listen to their rehearsals, but I often go and hear the concert. And so, a lot of the time, I go in and go, "Oh wow, they've really jumped up, and he's gone, or she has gone off in this direction or that direction." There have been on a couple of occasions I've gone in, watched the concert, and thought, "Well." It was better Thursday evening when I left it than it is, it is now. You know, uh, uh, you're laughing, and you know, and I'm sure you probably had the similar experiences where you went to the rehearsals and concert and thought, "Oh my god, it was brilliant yesterday." And now yeah. what? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's tough. You have to, I, I unless you're given prescriptive directions by that music director. I remember once Jack Van Steen on the phone told me basically how he wanted every bar of Marla 7 for when he arrived you know <laughs> wow which is great but then with most other people there's no context and so you have to prepare a sort of neutral version and then a few what ifs you know it could go this slowly dear wind players so you might need to breathe or it could go this fast you know and and but that's all you can do isn't it but no exactly I mean it, but it's such such an important skill I mean it, it, having it prescribed bar by bar, might be great but actually might be really difficult at the same time yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. uh so so um but yes i mean but musicians talk about this all the time in terms of how they prepare for their own 
rehearsals and they don't know what the conductor is going to take when they when they get to rehearsal on Monday. They have to prepare for this tempo or that tempo. And there are a million recordings out there um, of people who take it this and that tempo. And if you mm. don't have a recording of that particular conductor doing that particular piece, you might not have any idea. And even even if you do, you might not have any idea because they might have changed their minds since they made that mm. recording. So, um, so, yes, it's a bit of guesswork. But as you say, you know, to prepare sort of blank slate, uh, just get the nuts and bolts in there and prepare them for uh, what might go faster, might go slower. And that's to do with your developing your own technique as well. Mm. Because if you say, right, okay, let's, let's, <laughs> now, now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually, you know, something that we never get to do in our professional lives is, is, is experiment. Mm. We're just on this treadmill from rehearsal, 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 performance, you're lucky if in this country you get rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. Usually it's yeah, just yeah. rehearsal performance. Yeah. Um, but on the same day, <laughs> exactly. And we and we don't get this chance to actually say, what does this sound like? A little bit slower, a little bit faster, because we're all supposed to show up having having this preformed idea of what of what our uh, I you know what we want this week, and we're almost discouraged from changing that through the week because some musicians really find that disconcerting to to oh well you know she took it faster at the beginning of the week and why all of a sudden is it slower now I don't, mm. and the, the note, some some of them are back there with metronomes you know clocking you at yeah. you know, this tempo or that tempo and actually you know sometimes you go in with it with an ideal tempo and if you haven't conducted this piece before it's in your head and then suddenly you get in front of a whole bunch of people and it and it feels like it needs to be different mm. usually mm. it feels like it needs to be slower than it's in my head um or sometimes it's too slow and it needs to be picked up a bit. And you can you only know that when you get into the situation. Yeah. Um, you only know food, you know, what it, whether it's good to serve to somebody else if you've you know tasted it. If you've you know, tasted you can, it, yeah. you can only smell it. Uh, you yeah. know, you haven't tasted it. So, so those roles are 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 tough. I mean, I but they they gave me so much. Especially Houston gave me, uh, you know, experience doing kids concerts and education concerts and community concerts and speaking to the audience at every single one of these. I mean, I remember being terrified to speak to the audience before my Houston job. And even in the first few months of my Houston job, I was absolutely terrified. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, now you can't shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> I still, to be honest, though, I still get more nervous for speaking to the audience than I do when I turn around and conduct. I oh still, God, yeah, every time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time, I thought it would get it, it. It does get easier because you 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 have so much experience. You know that you make these points and you can make them in five different ways. Um, yeah. but, I've so, done more of it since COVID because. I think it's become expected of conductors. But I remember somebody saying to me, oh, you must be fine with it. You know, you've got your podcast. I said, yeah, that's fine. But I don't, I can't edit out my ers and ums live on the stage, which I do with my own podcast. You know, that's the point. Um, I can't script the opening um, like I do for my podcast. You know, it's 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 diff it's still very, very difficult. And you're standing there, you feel very naked to, you know, all sorts. And you, yeah, it's, I, 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 I smiled, not agreeing with you completely about that. Yeah. Yeah. So those positions are, are they give you so much, and I mean, sometimes you're doing four different programs in one week. Uh, uh, you're doing a classical, and you're doing a family concert, and you're doing some run-out concert, and you've got a speech to give at the Rotary Club, and you know, you're doing all of these different things at the same time, and it really is a sort of um, triathlon kind of training <laughs> i've done triathlon training but yeah. um, we talked about sports already and that was that that's as much as it should feature in this, <laughs> this <laughs> podcast interview i think um but um you know then you then you spend a lot of your time sitting on your hands and watching and that also is hugely 
helpful and frustrating at the same time because mm. you see great conductors come through I, I saw great conductors come through houston symphony i saw ones that I, you know i definitely thought i didn't agree with and that i i i wanted to kick them off the stage and not take the, take over the reins myself mm. um mm. and you're, you're in this kind of in-between stage with the with the orchestra as well so during the weeks when you're covering or during the rehearsals that you're covering, you know, you maybe you're talking to the musicians backstage about what do they think about what's going on this week? Do you like the conductor? Do you not? Um, uh, do you like the music? Do you not? What's going on? And you're, you're trying to, and that's really, really helpful yeah. uh, interaction that you don't always get when you are the guest conductor for the week or the chief conductor. Um, and, you know, but then it, it, they are, the orchestras are really tough on their assistant conductors and mm. um, those jobs are, are really tough in terms of what's expected you know if I if I were to look back I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything differently except perhaps to know a little bit more about what the orchestra might have expected of, mm. of their assistant conductors and different orchestras expect different things but uh, those I think it's I think it's maybe a little different now than it was then but I think the the situations where you see the orchestra most are in the situations where they want to be least. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> like very true. Educa education concerts or the pops concerts or the, the things that, you know, just, you know, let's just wham, bam, thank you, man, rehearsals. Um, and then out the door we go. And if you try to do something wonderful and musical within those, you know, it often, I, I have found that it often doesn't work because they're not in the right frame of mind. They're not mm. in the classical subscription frame of mind. They're just in the, come on, let's just get through this. And there's, you know, you may be, you may have this ideal musical product in your mind, but you know that there are going to be 3000 kids and lots of noise and nobody's going to hear it anyway. So, uh, yeah. you know, it's sort of, um, you get a young idealist trying to, trying to do something on stage. So um, I think, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't really regret having those positions at all because of the huge amount of experience it gave me. Um, when you come to teach, I, as a teacher, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, unless you've had a formative teacher for a long time, um, you know, but do you rely on your uh, your Russian school teaching that you're given, the hard-nosed Russian school teaching, or go back to Nicole? And and you know how do you how much do you enjoy teaching? I love teaching, and I think of teaching is not so dissimilar from my conducting. Yeah, I think yeah. of what I'm what I'm doing for the people in front of me, whether they're an orchestra or whether they're a bunch of conducting students. I'm enabling them, yeah, to do what what what's inside of them so in front of an orchestra i'm enabling them to unleash their brilliant talent on their instrument and when you're teaching you're enabling the student to to unleash or to learn and to learn how to unleash what, mm. what's inside of them as well so there's the whole enabling thing there's the whole um I mean, it's such a weird thing to teach because it's mm. so individual and everybody's body is so individual. And, and yes, you can teach one, two, three, four pattern. You can teach that in half an hour. You can teach everything, you know, uh, staccato, legato, etc. Et but beyond that, you know, what gestures you use, what facial expressions you use, what bodily, how do you, how you use your body? Do you, are you a little bit lower down? Are you a little bit higher up? How you hold the baton? What baton, you know, mm. 
there's so much variation and there's no real it, it, there's no real right way or wrong way because there's so many different examples of people conducting without batons at all people conducting with enormous henry wood batons or yeah. tiny gergiev toothpicks you know, <laughs> it's like there's no yeah, yeah, right yeah. way there's no stradivarius of uh, no. <laughs> of a baton no. and um and there are people who've made it work in so many different you know bernstein jumps on the podium uh, you know mazur hardly moves at all you know sort of it's a it's a it, there's so many different ways that it's hard to teach so really what you're enabling is for somebody to develop the technique to express yeah. what they want to express and in a certain degree you're 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 teaching appropriate tempos and appropriate interpretation and all of that and there's a balance of what is what is supposed to be taught and what is supposed to be individual and all of that and there's that enormous gray area of yeah. interpretation and all of that but um but that's why I love it because it's not so dissimilar from from what's from what's on the podium. Yeah, uh, I mean the other thing at that sort of level as well, you know, when you're t when you're giving masterclasses to people who are starting out on a career, it's sometimes it, it doesn't even need to be about what they're conducting or how they're conducting. Sometimes it can be just being a sounding board. You know, I've got. Um, on my Patreon page, I've got six young conductors, and a couple of them are, you know, doing well. But they, there's nobody to ring up to ask about, you know, uh, you know, watch any all sorts of questions that aren't covered in inverted commas conducting classes. You know, what should I do about this rehearsal order? Should I? How much time should I spend on this? You know, and just to be a sounding board and to give them some just some simple advice. Uh, I'll give them a few options, and okay, and more often than not, so I hadn't thought of that option. Thank you, and it, that's enough. You know. Um, are you right it's such an individual thing to te to teach conducting and you yeah uh, i love it I, I used to i taught the violin for 10 years and i hated it dear listeners i hate i absolutely hated it um because there are certain rules there, you know there are certain techniques there are certain things you have to do and if people didn't practice them they'd be practicing them in your time but conducting is different well there's all those other there's all those other skills uh besides yeah. the the conducting technique which you've just alluded to there's yeah. the rehearsal technique there's yeah. even planning programming you know that's the whole like yeah you know university module in itself in terms of how do you plan the program how do you decide which music to 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 do in the first place then there's the people skills oh my yeah. word the people skills you know and dealing with all the different personalities in front of you the leadership skills you know and how you develop all of those different leadership skills of, of humility and empathy but strength and vision and you know all of these different yeah. things which you have to have um and nobody teaches you how to how to how to do them you know you uh, just have to you know well there are lots of books um but ultimately it does come from your own experience and from and from teaching i think from, yeah. from listening to people watching them do it um and and uh and trying it yourself realizing that didn't work building up a whole library of that didn't work <laughs> yeah, um, and then yeah, real yeah. <laughs> realizing that maybe after you've been doing it for 20 years maybe you've eliminated certain ways of doing things and, and you've opened opened up other ways uh, yeah. by learning from those yeah. experiences. Uh, there's one thing we also have in common here is uh, a love and probably a need to conduct youth orchestras. Um, you know, you've had an association with the National Children's Orchestra, but you've conducted the National Youth Orchestras of Scotland, Wales, Great Britain, Venezuela, probably more, um, <laughs> uh, and done education projects with London Mozart Players, LSO and LPO. Why? I know why I do it, um, and, I know, and I've heard why other conductors do it, but why do you... Because there are some agents who would happily 
say to us, and not my agent, thank God, or my manager, Sarah, who would say to us, no, you mustn't work with kids or with amateurs because it's damaging to your career and your technique. But why do you do it? I know why I do. Why do you do it? I can't stay away from it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have been I have been told things like, you know, you shouldn't do that because it might damage your career. But I can't help it because, one, I believe very strongly in music education and doing yeah. what I can for music education because that is the future of the people we sit and we, we enjoy standing in front of you know are is only they're only there because mm. of music education yeah. and if we think we're above it then we shouldn't be doing what we're doing agreed um, yeah. so i mean in addition to the idealistic reasons for doing it um i love it i love seeing the the uh, first of all i love kids energy i love the things that they say when you ask them questions they have the most they say the most unexpected answer, <laughs> you know, that you never could have predicted. And it's brilliant. And they have, yeah. they, they, they have no filters sometimes. And they just, they put, some, you know, if I say, you know, what, what are you imagining here in the, in the, you know, in this, in this bit? And they'll say, you know, a frog jumping off of a, you know, in a, in, into a pool and the splash and the, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, you know, that they have a, these vivid imaginations and, um, and you've, and, and you, and you can, and you see that and you see the connections that they make and also the progress you mm. can see from Monday to Friday or whatever the structure of the week happens to be. And the, the, how it builds them up right and they they see their progress and they think wow i've got wings i can do anything because we we you know on monday we couldn't even make it through this piece and now we're performing it you know yeah. uh it's just in, immense the progress and then to see those kids afterwards and to think that they didn't think they could do it and they did it hopefully i'm hoping that they take that to other things that they do and they take that they can't help but take that to other things that they do and use it as a, a building block for their confidence mm. but i just i love i love that energy i love i love the no filters and i love the and i i'm coming back to this again this is the second time i've mentioned it but i think the 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 space that we have in those kind of weeks for experimentation that mm. we don't have in the professional world like we're not allowed to learn anymore when we're in the professional world we're not allowed to try things but in an educational situation we can we can mm. try things we can try it this way and we can think really creatively i mean the most amazing thing about working with the national children's orchestra which i did for the first time last april um was the was the the team of tutors that i got mm. to work with um and they're unbelievable creativity in the way that they they each worked with their sections and the creative things that they were doing and then that fed into my rehearsals and then my rehearsals fed into their sessions and and it was and it was really this this sort of creative um conversation that was going on all week and it was it was it was brilliant it was all because they're inspired by the kids in front of them yeah i i, I actually could basically see the last time i conducted youth orchestra was the cbso's own youth orchestra and we did uh, Lutoslavsky Concerto for Orchestra, which is it was exactly like you just described. Couldn't play it on, on day one. By the end, not only were we performing it, I saw children's or young students' faces light up when when they heard how good it was in the concert. And the other thing that you said, of course, we you know we're giving back and we're we're making sure that in through music education that what the people that we stand up in front of con conducting professionally are well-educated and, and do it well. 
But I always say to the CBS Youth Orchestra, I always say to them, look, I have to treat you all as if you want to be musicians. But I know that there are going to be politicians in here, doctors in here, lawyers in here, estate agents, gold blair, whatever in here. Um, and all of these skills are transferable and their lives are better. They'll be better lawyers and doctors and politicians. Well, politicians, but maybe not. Uh, but they'll be better for it, for having studied music and been part of a youth orchestra like that. And it is so important, not just from the music life, but for everybody's life. And I only wish politicians actually thought like that in this country. And I imagine many other countries around the world. Absolutely. I, you put it much better than I have ever done for the last uh, 10 years that I've been banging on about the same things. I mean, that's the reason why I'm at, you know, a place like Royal Holloway. Uh, you know, I, I conduct, I'm there weekly for their yeah. for the orchestra rehearsal there. Um, and uh, most of them are not going to be professional musicians. Yeah. Um, but I'm not there because of that. And I'm there, not even if they don't go into the music business, but I'm there for the life skills that this orchestra provides. Yeah. And I'm continually talking about this to you know, the audiences who are usually comprised of mostly their parents. Mm. Um, so it's, <laughs> here's yeah. what these amazing kids are working on. Yes, they're playing music, but what they're actually doing yeah. is they're working on their nonverbal communication. What they're actually doing is they're working on their leadership skills. They're working on their confidence, on their discipline. And they're, they're doing all of these things whilst pretending to play an orchestra. Mm. And, you know, that's on the surface, but all these other things underneath, which, which you know, the orchestra is is giving them so um completely that's that's um that's another core reason that i think you know i i just i keep i keep taking on these positions of of uh, uh teaching at various different various different places and at various different levels because i find it fascinating what skills it gives to each of those different ages and levels of of uh youth mm. there is an 11th question before we get to the 10 questions and I wonder whether you mentioned it earlier on, and I've kept this stored and filed away. I wonder whether you still use a ruler and coloured pencils that, that Nicole asked you to. Uh, there's a ruler being waved in front of me, and probably a red and blue pencil. Oh no! Gen <laughs> yeah. Therefore, I know there's the answer. And it's about score study. You know, uh, how do you approach it? Do you sit at the piano? Do you use your inner ear? Do you go large to small? or start at page one, go to the end. And now we know that you are still a scribbler, um, uh, which is which is good for the geeks amongst us. How do you do it? How do you learn a score? It's a great question. It's a question we could probably spend another few hours talking about. Of course. About, but I won't. Yeah. Um, it depends. What, what, where I start depends. I do get that excitement that you described at the beginning of the of the podcast when a new score arrives. It's like, a you know, a kid at Christmas. Christmas kind of thing something arriving and the you know when you get to open it and break the binding and the smell of a new score and I don't know sometimes I flip through the whole thing and I find out what happens at the end of the story sometimes mm. I'm I, I get stuck on page one because I'm like wow there's so much here um I need to absorb that I try really hard not to make any decisions before I've seen the end and seen the middle and yeah and done all of that so usually it's a kind of perusal through even if I get stuck trying to absorb what's on page one, I, I force myself to go on and see what happens, what happens next. I want to, I want to see the narrative. Um, what's the rest of it like? And then I go back and forth and back and forth. And then eventually it takes me a while before I will make a first, um, a first mark. Yeah. yeah. That for me is the, the hardest thing is like, I don't want to, I, I, I want it to remain pristine. Um, and I'll, you know, if I, if I know, it does depend, you know, if I'm opening up a, 
a score by a composer who I've done lots and lots of. I'm opening up a, a you know a Mahler score. I've done lots of Mahler, and then I'm opening up a, a new symphony. I don't need to go and probably at that point learn about Mahler. But mm. if I'm opening up a score about somebody who I know nothing about, I'll go and find out about the composer, what context, what is this, what if there's a text, what does this mean? Um, before I really dig in. Then once I dig in, it's like an obsessive process of yeah. of marking and and discovering. And yes, I do an inner ear. If I can hear it, if I can't hear it, I'll go to the piano. Pianos in this house tend to be occupied quite a lot of the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I can't always get to a piano, no. um, but um, and then there there is also the, the the fact that my husband's usually practicing downstairs, and and you know unless I go out to the garden studio or put on my noise cancellations, sometimes it's quite difficult to to hear the inner ear, especially if I just learning a score. So mm. yes, it's a process of at the keyboard. I do a lot of singing. I do a lot of um, singing blah and, and and figuring out the phrasing um so it's it depends on what your score needs uh, there's mm. not a for me there's not a set way of doing it but there is a set way of marking a score i'm very i'm quite disciplined about you know red for cues and blue for dynamics and using a ruler uh harmonic analysis which take a long long time and i don't mm. always do it all at once i do it in bunches because it it um it you know it takes a huge amount of concentration um so so yeah, it's a back and forth between what I what I feel like and and how much time I've got. I've got you know lots of demands on my time with two kids and crazy freelance life and teaching and all of that. So it's a question of okay, what can I accomplish in this hour that I have now? Okay, I'll I'll do the harmonic analysis because I think that's probably where my frame of mind is at the moment. At this point, Rebecca and I discussed our relevance as conductors and musicians to the audience and to society as a whole, and how music helps to feed people's souls. I've made this into a short bonus mini-episode for subscribers to my Patreon page. You can subscribe to my Patreon page for as little as £5 a month. You can also pay annually and get a 10% discount, and if you're a student, feel free to contact me and I will raise that discount further for you. Not only will you have access to all of the previous mini-episodes attached to this podcast, you can also listen to around 30 hours of interviews with prominent musicians, managers, agents and soloists. You can read my very popular tour diaries that I write when I go and guest conduct abroad, as well as articles about conducting and conductors. Just head to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Rebecca Miller. Rebecca, there is no escaping the final section of this podcast because every single conductor has answered the same 10 questions since the start of the pandemic. And so the first two questions are always, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of waves crashing on the shore. I grew up by the sea and I mm. could sit for hours and just listen to wave after wave after wave crashing on the sea. I find it so relaxing, uh, but also invigorating, slightly scary because you don't know how close the wave is going to get. Um, but then also realizing my uh, insignificance as one person against this huge ocean, which mm. is the majority of the earth. And the sound that you 
dislike intensely or even dare I say that I disliked yes I got I I was I was in dreamland on I know yes you were you were listening to waves (laughs) (laughs) sorry to wrestle you away from those yeah no someone else whistling oh (laughs) I can't I can't deal with that usually because there's probably some music going on in my head and when they start whistling it's almost it's inevitably something different than what I've got I was tied between that or the um the screeching of the tracks of between on the northern line between goldish green and Hampstead. i was torn between those two so (laughs) i I did a patreon interview um a dear friend of mine suzanne doyle who works at asking us halt in the touring department and so i've interviewed her a different line but she chose the bakerloo line um the the screeching of the the wheels again coming into one of the stations it's i i was there last week as i said with the lpo i actually had to stop on the platform i was walking the train came in i had to stop and put both fingers in my ears it was so loud um absolutely if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing Oh, I see. Am I limited to, to being in, in London? Because I let my imagination run wild no, you, on this one. Go anywhere fly, in the world. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. If yeah. I could transport myself, I would be hiking in Yosemite National Park. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Oh, I might be skiing. That was another one. But I think hiking. Yeah. I I, I mean, I love walking. So there's lots of walking to do, you know, out, out uh, not too far from my doorstep. So yeah. hiking, walking, being out in nature, um, especially a winter's day, a winter's sunny day. A nice cold walk um, mm. will do me lots of good. Number four, can you name your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Well, Bernstein's got to be at the top of my list, um, mm. but I don't always like all of his recordings, uh, so I had to put some uh, alternatives on there as well. Uh, favourite also is Schulte um, uh, or Claudio Bardo as yeah. well. I put down. Bardo has made quite a lot of appearances. Bernstein, most of the Americans talk about Bernstein. <laughs> Schulte, I think only one other person over 120-odd interviews has said Schulte, um, right. which I find interesting because, you know, he was one of the conducting greats. He maybe didn't have a technique that we all allude to having. He very much his own way and his own man and his own, you know, way of doing things. But a great musician and wonderful recordings. I mean, amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I didn't base this at all on what somebody looks like visually. Oh. I based it only on recordings that I love. And um, it's interesting. I never really, I, and I did see Schulte conduct once. Uh, and I have a story about that when I was at Oberlin Conservatory and, and um, we would make special trips to go to the Cleveland Orchestra. And it was about an hour's drive and nobody had a car and things. So it was, it was quite a unique thing to be able to go. And we got some student tickets and we were up in the gods you know and he was doing Beethoven 5 and it must have been one of his last concerts um and we'd just been studying this piece in in conducting class and how to start the bloody thing you know Mm, so mm. um and (laughs) and I remember we all had our opera glasses there to try to see what he was going to do he's going to jump on the podium or whether he was just going to give a slow upbeat and then release like an elastic band or whatever um and and do you know what the bastard did i can say that now because he's no longer alive um he started i don't know if i can i'll have to say this because it's a podcast he went he he conducted a bar of four one two three four and we, we all turned to each other and we went that's what? cheating! You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. it was brutal. 
brilliant because, of course, if you look at the end of the exposition of Beethoven 5, there are three empty bars there, right? Yes, yes. Okay? And it ends in E flat major, if you ask John Carew. Um, you know, the, the whole piece starts in E flat major uh, because you've ended in E flat major at the end of the exposition. Anyway, there are three empty bars. And I just yeah. remember being like, whoa, that yeah. just blew my mind if we'd had the blowing mind emoji at that point. That would have yeah. been me. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, but his recordings, I mean, I've got his Mahler recordings and I can't think of what else I've got of his, lots of it. And um, I did actually have the opportunity to look at his scores uh, at some point. And my husband uh, made a connection with Valerie Schulte. I can't remember exactly how. And she and she she and I were talking and she invited me to see his, he had passed away at this time, yeah. to, to see his study and to come by because he, he, you know, they had a house in London. Um, and his, she left his, it was like a shrine there. She'd left his scores. I think it was John's passion exactly is the thing he was had been studying when he passed away. And it was yeah. a bit spooky, but he said, she said, yeah, you can flip through the scores and look. And I mean, it was really, I love looking through other conductor scores mm. to see what they mark and how they mark them. Because I also did the same thing when I was at Oberlin, I went to the Cleveland Orchestra Library and I looked at George Sell's scores meticulously marked yeah. all the Sforzando's You've got a row of Sforzando's going vertically. They're all circled in blue. Yeah. You know, even if one, most of the rest of us might just circle one of them. Yeah. But no, it's a, a meticulously uh, marked. Um, and Schulte scores were sort of, you know, had these big, not a lot scribbled, but what was scribbled was was sort of big and bold. And, uh, you know, if yeah. you look at early videos of him, a bit like his his early conducting videos. Um, so, yeah, and he had this wonderful way of marking phrases sort of like the countdown uh which um so yeah i did have this i did have a, a very strong uh start in how to mark a score from from nicole but i've developed my own things as I've, I've picked from other conductors that i thought wow that's i think that's a great way of of um of marking something in a score so i have i've sort of picked up things like a you know, those animals that pick up Whales, yeah, things growing on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the question that everybody wants me to ask at this point is: since watching Schulte conduct the start of Beethoven Five like that, have you? Will you? Or would you? I just did it. Yeah, and I just did it like that. I hadn't. I hadn't done it for many years. And for me, for many years, I've just sort of just done these kind of out of tempo upbeat. Ba, 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 bum, and yeah. sort of an inhale out of tempo and you know and i'd never found that it that it worked very well for me mm. and um and i'm sure that's my failing i'm sure plenty of conductors make that work um and i tried it i just did it with upsala uh in september yeah and it worked and did you tell them where the story no yeah. Oh, um, maybe later on in the week, right. but not not to begin with, certainly. Yeah, because you know, like a little bit, a little bit like Stravinsky talks about, uh, good composers steal. Uh, I, you know, there's the famous Carlos Kleiber video of him starting Coriolan, where he walks on and just turns around and goes wallop with a great big downbeat. <laughs> and I'd read that that was he he decided to do that because he'd seen Duke Ellington start a set with exactly the same thing, and he tried it and he said what he got was the sound. And the depth of the sound of the start of Coriolan, but also the the togetherness of that chord. It's one that, like you've just said, I tried every single way of trying to get the weight of the either Coriolan or Egmont that opening unison note, either a C or an F, and I could never get it to work. 
I thought, sod it one day, I'm just going to try Kleiber's way, who, who nicked it from Ellington, so I'll nick it from Kleiber, and it works. And But I do now normally explain why. And, and there's, a, you know, people dropping things on the floor because you mentioned you know, stealing it from Kleiber, you know, clang, or, or from, <laughs> from Ellington. But I normally do explain and say, this is why I do it this way. You know, I, I don't want to talk about the weight or the sound or the attack. Just go with, you know, wallop. And it and it works. Um also, they need to be ready to play, do it at the start of a concert. You know, don't wait for me to turn around, breathe, and prepare. Yes. I'm just going to hit, hit the you know the downbeat. Yeah. Question five is often considered a lot harder, Rebecca, because it's about current conductors. Some people go repertoire specific. Some people say that you know it's very difficult because they haven't seen other conductors working, and one person famously refused to answer at all. Um, <laughs> but who would be your favourite current conductors or conductor? Well, I would give all of those excuses if I could, but they've already yes. been said now. I did say that, you know, so it, it does depend on repertoire. Like it's it's a bit like asking, you know, which of my children do I like best? You know, of course. A fair question. Yeah. No, um, I know it but, isn't. Yeah. 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 But I do, I think um, Norrington features very highly on my list, even if I don't always agree with, with, uh, with what he does, I, I can't deny his his genius. Mm. Um, and I go to Harnon Court's uh, recordings quite, quite a lot. He's not, He's not contemporary anymore, is he? No, he's, no, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, okay, but he does. He does sort of count. Yeah, um, yeah. I love Mark Elder actually. Uh, really, really love his uh, recordings of um, Elgar and English music. Um, although I haven't seen him a lot yes. uh, live. Um, and Barenboim's got a feature on there as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Who I I've uh, been been to more than one performance and been completely bowled over by uh yeah. just just the sheer depth of musicality and and interpretation and and just mind-blowing moments um although i have seen him not necessarily always succeed i remember there was a a, hmm. a, a bit of a dodgy strauss waltz with the vienna phil at the proms of one year um when they almost didn't they almost fell apart but um apart from that yeah well uh, brilliant choices yeah brilliant choices Though it has to be said, dear listener, who's never conducted an orchestra in your life, uh, if you seem to, if you think that something as musically charming and beautiful as a, as a Strauss waltz is easy to conduct, you are sadly mistaken. Um, <laughs> those concerts on the first of January or anywhere between the first and seventh of January are up there with the toughest things you ever have to conduct. Um, yeah. They're technically incredibly difficult. And again, like you said, most orchestras don't want to be there and they don't really want to rehearse them either. So you don't have much rehearsal time. Um, you know, seconds of violas and horn players want to kill themselves for going chut chut for two hours. Uh, and you've got the, the most difficult technical challenge. Absolutely. I mean, they, and you have to make it look completely it's so easy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yes, there's the smallest but very significant difference can lift that music off the page yeah. or it can sound just as flat as a pancake and it's yeah. like a very it's a you know it's a very small difference that can do that and, and there are very few people in the world who could do that really <laughs> talking of technically difficult as like a strauss waltz i wonder whether uh they might feature as the hardest work you've ever conducted what would that be well, I didn't put them down, but I might now if I if I were going to go back and do this answer <laughs> again, uh, because, yeah, I hadn't thought of those. I mean, there are a lot of difficult pieces. I put yeah. down the Rite of Spring as yes. one of them, yeah. uh, just because of the sacrificial dance at the end. It's just, you know, there's there's no pattern. There's no I'm a very rational kind of organized 
phrase phrase length kind of person um and there's there's no rationality there that i can Mm. find maybe i just haven't found it yet it's it's when you get the irrational and there's no there's no really distinctive pattern uh so i found the writer's spring very 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 difficult um Mahler five the scherzo features on there um which is a piece that i did in a competition and i think I don't know if it's actually the most difficult piece that I've ever conducted, but I but I have this whole thing about it now um, because I, I I did the um, the Bamberg competition the first year that it that it that it ran mm. um, the in, the Mahler international Mahler competition which was with the Bamberg Symphony and uh, incredible competition which they gave all the first round people one hour uh, for wow. the first round which is unheard of yeah um, and I remember going to um, uh, a famous conductor, maybe should remain, remain nameless because maybe um, maybe they wouldn't want to be associated with this particular comment. Say, I'm, I'm preparing Mahler 5 for this really important competition. Um, can you give me any advice? And this person said, oh, just pray that you don't get the scherzo. <laughs> That's all that they said. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, I got drawn. I was candidate number one. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the the first round lasted over four days. So candidate number one had to conduct tomorrow, and candidate number sixteen got until Saturday. You know that sort of thing. So, um, and we had our specific lots drawn of a particular movement of a particular symphony, uh, and so I got drawn the scherzo first candidate, um, and I'm and I made a, a a you know a pig's meal of it. It was just <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, German orchestra responds very late to the to the stick, and I hadn't yes. I hadn't conducted a, an orchestra that had responded that late before. And of course, I, I gave the downbeat, and I was on bar four by the time they played. Ba ba bum, ba ba ba. So you know, um, and they're brilliant. I mean, there's nothing against the orchestra. It's just I I didn't know what I was doing. So that that movement for that that symphony particularly, uh, and I and I've done it since, and it and it, and it um and it went fine. But I have a particular it, thing about that movement. It's it reminds me so much of a lesson or a chat I had with Zachary Oromo uh, when I was first starting to really get serious about becoming a conductor. I was doing Beethoven's Eroica and we were chatting about it. No score involved. We were just chatting about certain things that were needed and whatever else. And he just said, Mike, do you conduct the first movement in one or in three? And I said, both. And he said, good answer. He said, because I think if you do it all in one, it'll probably be wrong. If you do it all in three, it'll probably be wrong. And the and the scares of Mahler 5 is exactly the same. The minute you're in three, you think I should be in one. And then you're in one, you think, I oh, know I should be in three. And you've got to you've got to work out w- what you're doing on a case-by-case orchestra and hall situation. Mm-hmm. Uh and yeah, and you're never it never feels comfortable because you you're always in the wrong you know, in your mind, oh, I should be in three now. And, I, and, and the minute you go to three, you think, no, I should have stayed in one. <laughs> that, and, oh, and also then Marla changes the tempo a lot yeah. in that movement, yeah. subtly and also very unsubtly. Uh, yeah, I'm doing it again soon in 2023. And, and yeah, I'm looking forward to opening that score uh, and then wrestling again with, you know, where am I going to be in one and where am I going to be in three? Um, yeah, good answers. You've, you've put it perfectly, absolutely <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I put down my contact lenses because I can't see a bloody thing without them. Um, And I need to be able to see people. Uh, So I always make sure that I have my contact lenses. Um, But I have lucky concert earrings and I have a very special hair gel. And I I have all these things that I've 
um, that, uh, you know, I think without, uh, I, would, <laughs> I would be limited on the podium uh, yeah. just, just without that. Um, there's also a, um, a, portable, a portable massage gun, which I have discovered recently, which is absolutely genius. Yeah. Because after a rehearsal, if I've had a long rehearsal day, my shoulders and my neck are um, really stiff and I have this self-massaging gun, which I can just put over my neck and this, I give uh, credit to a the trombone tutor on the um, NCO course that uh, she, she introduced me to it. And it, it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. So now from this point forward, I will never travel without that again. Number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think, to, yeah, it's, some of it is in terms of just being able to experiment and having the the um, the the time and the space to just work with an orchestra and yeah. and and work with and, and maybe even more flexibility in the in the whole concert industry and all of that. Uh, that 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 was kind of the world that I got stuck in on this question. Mm. Um, that you know we have we, we feel we can't some in some situations we feel we can't program what we want to program because it won't sell tickets and we're worried about the 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 bottom line for the orchestra. And there's 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 a lot of factors that are limiting some uh, some of our creativity. Mm. Um, and so the, the the structure of of the the work that conductors and orchestras do together uh, was was where I got stuck on that. But particularly about being a conductor, I think in terms of um, feedback and being being honest, somebody being honest with me, I just have found that it's it's difficult to get honest feedback once you're out. I mean, when you're when you're studying, oh gosh, you've got lots of feedback. That's fine. Yeah. You've got lots of feedback from your teacher and from the yeah. and even as an assistant, yeah. even as an yeah, assistant, exactly. orchestral players are willing to give you feedback because they yep. feel that it's their role to mould you into a, the conductor they'd like to see in the future. But then you get out there and nobody says a bloody word about what you've done. No, exactly. You don't know, Does it? did it go well? Did it not go well? Sometimes when things go well, you you don't hear from them, but then they contact you later and they say, oh yeah, it went brilliantly. We just haven't had the opportunity to get you back here. You know, yeah. Or sometimes when it doesn't go well, people just don't say anything. And, you know. so, and then oftentimes uh, the situation limits them from giving their feedback. Like if you're with a freelance orchestra, the freelancers don't necessarily feel comfortable giving feedback because they're worried about their own kind of, Yeah. if I say something that offends the orchestra manager, then, then they might not invite me back. And then I lose yeah. the work all because I gave some random bit of feedback to the conductor kind of thing. So um, I think this is a problem in the, in the orchestral, in the musical world as well. Uh, but I think particularly for conductors, because we don't, we don't have something to practice on at home. No. <laughs> you know, the first time that you practice, you're standing in front of 80 people or 60 people, and you know, and, and, and to, to be able to get feedback, even if, I, I guess, if you, if we got lots, lots of feedback, we'd be able to filter out the, yeah. the stuff, you know, at the moment, if we get one piece of feedback, we probably um, literally feed on it, don't we? Because mm -hmm. it's like, it's the only thing that anybody said to me and it's, I, I'm, it must be true. Um, so, so that whole, that whole, aspect of it is I find really difficult that um, you don't know if what you're doing is good or makes sense or works for that and then and then you don't know whether it just worked, didn't work for that orchestra or whether it's in general something you need to look at <laughs> so, uh, you get stuck in this I guess maybe it's just I get stuck in this loop well it I, I think the vast majority of the concerts that we give with orchestras whether we're guesting or whether we're going to an orchestra that you see fairly regularly. I'm trying to avoid the extremes here. 
And um, why am I avoiding the extremes? The extremes are you start rehearsing with one orchestra for the first time, and within minutes you realize, hey, these guys are really good, and they're doing what I what I'm asking of them, and they quite seem to be enjoy it. It's almost like a love at first sight, love in thing, which you probably had in Uppsala, and, and you know uh, I've had with other orchestras. Then there's the, the other end of the spectrum where you walk in, you start conducting, and you think, oh, this isn't going very well. And then there's almost, uh, you know, unbridled aggression in your general direction. And you think, right, OK, I don't think I ever want to come here again. And it's pretty sure they don't want me to come here again either. And I've had a couple of those. But in the middle is this massive 90%, 95% grey area of just getting on with things. And you really don't know. You might get somebody an individual come and give you some feedback and say, oh, I absolutely love that concert or but that most of the rest of the time you're in a limbo world, aren't you? Of not knowing. And even if your agent rings up and, and you know, the, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'd love to see him again in two years time or whatever, uh, whatever it might be, you still don't get any, any direct feedback. And, and yeah, it's difficult. I mean, if, if there was too much, we'd have to put on our TripAdvisor goggles. You know, when you read through a restaurant of reviews of TripAdvisor, there's always somebody there who's going to whinge about everywhere they go. And you can you can tell by their language. And there's always somebody who's going to glow about it. You're filtering through and you can work out what but what what was being said. So, yeah, I don't know. Whether, I'd like some more feedback, just maybe not as much as TripAdvisor. And, and definitely more than we get now. I agree with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes absolutely absolutely number nine uh real or fantasy completely up to you what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have attempted well i thought about and i have tinkered with the idea um many times although i, I don't think uh i don't think i'm actually going to go for it but it's to be um a cantor in a synagogue um oh. so yeah i bet you haven't heard that one before i haven't uh, no the nearest i've got was uh christopher seaman way back in about episode 14 15 he talked about wanting to either be a vicar or something like that because he works with his local church uh as a role there and, and he said you know it would have been something you would greatly enjoy but no i've not had cantor no well the for me the attraction would be singing i love singing i never really pursued singing uh, I tried to, and I lost my courage. I sort of tried to audition to be a, a voice minor at Oberlin and, you know, and, and didn't get onto the voice minor program and kind of lost my courage. I've always loved singing. I've always integrated singing into my, um, into my study and I use it a lot in rehearsal and I have, um, I have occasionally performed as a singer. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, but the connection is, is the, and I'm not particularly religious, <laughs> that's what makes it very strange. <laughs> but um, it is it is a part of my identity, the Jewish identity. Yeah. Um, and it, for it's hard to explain. It's not it's for me. It's not really a religion. It's an identity. And yes. It's a people, uh, mm. and it's sort of more of the culture and the and the teaching and the and the. Um, and the connection to Israel and, and, and all of that. Um, so it's not necessarily the, the, the ritual. Um, and for me, I've separated that quite a lot. And other people, you know, particularly my, my husband, is, it must, means much, something much different to him. Yeah. Um, but the connection to that and to be able to connect that sort of spirituality with my voice and with music uh, would be the attraction. Um, and I, I, did, I did toy with the idea, but... Um, 
I mean, and I had I have a dear dear friend who's a um she's a trailblazer in this country. She's the first ordained uh, majority cantor, which is the, basically the the Jewish conservative movement in this country. Uh, first female ordained cantor in this country, and she's yeah. formed all sorts of um uh, organizations um and and blazed lots of trails, as I said. Um, and she's she's inspired me, but she's also made me realize that you know I think that with the number of years I have left in me, probably I I don't have enough time to learn <laughs> all that I need to learn <laughs> yeah. uh, to do it properly. Uh, no, she would she would say give it a go and and just do it because you love it and um, and uh, and absolutely I I when I when I have time um, you know it is something that that is a sort of a sideline study that I I do hope to get to and I I would love to get to and that I I regret not spending more time on um when i when i do have spare time so yeah I, i'm toying with the idea but i'm, I'm not um, looking at it as a profession but it's something no. that i would love to do as a side uh, and in an amateur sort of way the final question and the listeners now know that it's my favorite one if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink roast chicken and potatoes yes yes, yes. there's you know of all the fancy flavorful posh food in the world there's nothing that satisfies me more than a properly roasted chicken properly roasted potatoes and veg just um it it (laughs) you know sometimes i think we well i don't know i eat food because of i think because of the way i think that i hope it's going to make me feel yes right not necessarily about the actual taste but what am i i imagine what am i going to feel afterwards am i going to feel um you know, garlicky and oh, that was really flavorful, but oh, you know, got yeah, indigestion yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, roast chicken and potatoes. I just thought if it's you, you, you said if the world were to end tonight, if the world yeah. were to end tonight, I would want to feel a sort of satiated uh, state, and and that's that's what would put me there. So. And is there something you could wash that down with to keep you even more satiated? Oh, I suppose it would be a nice red and mm. uh, a nice, a nice deep red, maybe Chateauneuf or something like this, you know, something, something inexpensive like that. <laughs> <laughs> Chateauneuf de Pop, which I haven't had in ages. Uh, but um, yes, I think if it's the end of the world, I'll go for a bottle of that. Well, as you could, as I said, and I always say, dear listener, before I uh, read that question out off air, I always say what sort of things I've had in the past. I do not remember over 120 episodes anybody just saying roast chicken and potatoes and nice vegetables. Yes. I just don't remember anybody saying it. <laughs> uh, you know, and we've had everything from grandmother's pasta to pizza and beer around a campfire and to the, the famous Leonard Slatkin episode. But I don't remember anything as simple and as everyday and as yet delicious as that. So thank <laughs> you. And thank you for coming on. It's been a real joy speaking to you and getting to know you a little bit. And I hope... Even if it's just over a glass of Chateauneuf de Pap, we can sit down another day and have another chat. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for bringing conductors together. I think we don't get enough time to chat to each other. It's a lonely, lonely profession. And thank you very much for bringing us together. And I would love to take you up on that offer of a a glass of wine and a chat. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with the first Japanese conductor to appear on the podcast. He won the Besançon competition in 2009, and he's held title positions in Switzerland, Monaco, and his native Japan. 
Most importantly for me, on a personal level, he is the current principal conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye.